0: And, you know, there I'm sure there's people out there like, oh, you hiked four hours and called it quits, huh? Like, yep, I did. And I think you might too. Yeah.
1: Have you hiked Hell's Canyon? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. The <laughs> steepest gorge in North America. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I get up there and I'm absolutely whooped and I'm, you know, thinking weak thoughts, um, you know, not saying particularly nice things about myself to myself. And I look over and I see these rose bushes that are covering some metal and i go over there and there is a bunch of hay and equipment yeah on this bench that might have been i don't know 15 acres and i thought this is what you had to do to get to work yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no thank you <laughs> These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. A hot drink can become cool in two primary ways through conduction and convection. Conduction occurs when two objects touch each other. Imagine holding a piece of ice. Before long, your fingers are cold and the ice begins to melt. That's conduction. Convection occurs when a gas or liquid moves from being different temperatures. When you heat water over a stove, the warm water moves up and the cool water moves down. That's what you're seeing when water boils, and that's convection. A stainless vacuum bottle prevents conduction from occurring by creating a void between the walls of the bottle, thermos, or cup and the outside air. It prevents convection by keeping all the liquid inside at the same temperature. That's how a Stanley product keeps your cold drink cold and your hot drink hot. And they've been doing it for 110 years. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Stanley Nineteen Thirteen, and you can check out their new and classic line of products at Stanley1913.com. Okay, Mr. Mike Barrett, it's a pleasure, sir. I'm I'm glad that you're able to to take the time. tell me what's going on with your bees. Uh
1: it's an up and down process with beekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start so, yeah, doing this? I started, I wanted, because I have a small little orchard, I wanted to get one hive to get better pollination of mm. my fruit trees. Was, and I, was pollination an issue? Uh, I just felt like I could get more fruit from different trees. Mm-hmm. You know, like my pear, I have two pear trees and I, they weren't really uh, doing very well. And I don't think they self pollinate. And uh, it, so I got a, a beehive and I thought, well, fuck, I'll just get a beehive. Yeah. And, um, and then I thought, well, you know, you just sit it out there and, uh, then you go and get honey in the end of the summer and, and they'll just do their thing, leave them a little honey for them. And at that first winter, they all died, you know, and it's like, uh, oh, that pisses me off. Was and, it extra cold that winter? No, it's just bees are really tricky. It was probably a mite problem because oh. I didn't know how to treat for mites. And yeah. I hadn't done much research on raising bees. And I think most backyard beekeepers do the same thing. They just buy a hive or they get a hive from someone and they don't do much research. And it's pretty scientific to raise bees correctly. Yeah, And um, and I had a hive swarm. that So I re replenished the hive, bought some new bees, and I bought two hives with the bees. And, uh, and I had one swarm and fly away, and, and the other one uh, was still alive in the spring, but not very well, and didn't produce all that much honey. And so it was like... And I'm not sure that one didn't swarm a little bit. So it just really pissed what, what does, me off. What does
0: swarm mean in this?
1: When a colony reaches where they feel like they're crowded and the queen doesn't feel like she has room to lay enough brood to keep the hive sustained, mm-hmm. then they will raise a new queen, generally, and they will split naturally. And the old queen will take off with half or more of the hive mm. and fly away and find a new home. Okay. And uh, that's kind of how bees naturally uh expand is that uh you know when they feel crowded then a bunch of them will take off and like a teenager take off and leave home gotcha and uh so it's and i've i've since started beekeeping i've gone out and got usually one or two swarms a summer someone will call me up and go hey i got a swarm in my yard can you come pick it up right and and when you when you see that it's like this big mass of looks like a football or more hanging off a branch or a roof or something like that and they're relatively docile in that state at that point they are and uh i have got the shit stung out of me collecting a swarm (laughs) but uh you know i one of my hives swarmed i had all my hives down at jordan and liza's uh down in the amnaha one winter and jordan called me up right as i was sitting down to have a cocktail evening time and said you got a swarm outside right outside the house here and it's real i said where is it do i need a ladder and he goes oh no it's right at ground level it's in a like a little bush little gooseberry bush and um so i shot down to a naha and i shook those bees into a box and god the next thing i knew i had like six stings all over my arms and i didn't i didn't put my beekeeping suit on and yeah. I was just like oh these will be really docile and this will be easy because it's dark and uh oops bad mistake and uh But it wasn't that bad, but I got them all. And uh, so it's just one of those parts of beekeeping, you know. And so I've kept, I've had up to 30 hives, and right now I've probably got like 14 or 15 hives.
0: And how have your uh, fruit trees responded?
1: Pretty good. I've got, I've had pretty good, if the elk don't come in and chew all the buds off in the wintertime. Yeah. Yeah, that's... uh, That happened uh, about four winters ago, and we had the deep snow. I had three cows come. or cow and two cows and a calf came in there, and they just ate every bud off my apples. And uh, so I got virtually no fruit that summer. But since, you know, it seems to be working. I mean, that's what most beekeepers make their money on is pollination, not on honey. Honey is a byproduct. Mm. Pollination is the income. Yeah. So like right now, all the beekeepers, a guy I've been buying bees from, it's over in nissa he has like six thousand hives and he hauls them down to the almonds and uh you know it's a big process but that's where they make their money and then they'll be finishing about right now you know in the next couple weeks on the almonds and then they start heading up to the apple orchards pear orchards peach orchards and uh put the hives out in the orchard so pollination is the main income and then in june they'll start like your mom's place that's mm-hmm. the same guy yeah and he'll bring those hives over and set them out and then they'll collect the honey and sell some honey yeah and, stuff, but. and it's it's
0: wonderful honey what it one is. of the things that's been interesting to me since we started having bees here on the sixth ranch is uh how different the honey is between one hive and the next oh yeah it's visually different you can taste different it, it's amazing
1: yeah because bees will kind of focus they don't they don't go and just like hit clover and then an apple and then something when they start in on clover mm-hmm. they'll keep going after clover until there's no more clover yeah. and uh, at least that's what i've been told and read is that they're kind of focused on one thing at a time mm-hmm. instead of just hopscotching around you know and so
0: that's how i eat I yeah. eat everything <laughs> of one type on my plate and then i move and then you the move on to thing. your vegetables yeah. yeah yeah so well that's uh that's really
1: interesting I really enjoy it. Yeah. And uh, as I uh, ease out of uh, whitewater guiding, I'm going to kind of try and ramp up the bees. I got to find some young person that wants to uh, become a beekeeper Mm. and kind of train them up and have them help me. And uh, then when I'm ready to pass it on, I give it to somebody else, you know.
0: Perfect. Okay.
1: Well. If somebody's somebody's out here
0: listening and they they want to get into bees, get a hold of Mike at the end of this. Um, I consider your knowledge of of Hells Canyon to be as encyclopedic as anybody that I know, and one of one of the funnest things that I remember from my time as a whitewater guide was when we all got together to have uh, to have some training before the season started, and guides are are fascinating creatures all of them are um you know they're usually you know about 3 quarters homeless they've had a lot of jobs they live interesting lives and everybody that was an expert at something got to to bring it to the table and teach it to the rest of the guides and we all improved from each other in that 2-day class i thought that was just
1: awesome yeah it is a good thing
0: but your your part of it was to talk about hells canyon history and honestly i went into it thinking this is stuff that I already know. Um, I wish that we could skip this. And instantly I realized, I don't know any of this. This is fascinating and I can't get enough. Yeah. Um, so what are some stories that, that you really relish telling about Hell's Canyon? Um, I, I mean, I think we should start with like the formation of the canyon itself, start with geological history and then get into the people
1: okay uh, and I'm not a geologist, I'm a you know forester and a botanist by training, but um spending that much time down in the canyon, I've picked up quite a bit about the geology and uh and I have that interest in natural history, and the way I understand it is that there was no Oregon three hundred million years ago, yeah that uh the coastline was what we call. Idaho now, and the Salmon River country. And as undersea volcanoes, like in the Marianas Trench, started erupting and continuous eruptions and forming these masses, and those masses would travel on the plates. And accretion is the term for when one landmass docks and hits another one. It's like, you know pushing two soft ice cream cones together is how I like to describe it to people. If I'm telling them the story on a boat, it's like you take a chocolate ice cream cone and a vanilla ice cream cone and push them together. And you're going to have a little mixture of both. And you might push one off or a little bit like that. And that's kind of how the accretion worked is that you had this landmass that pushed up against the North American continent. And, as that slowly kept happening. And Vancouver Island is happen is one of these landmasses that's going to accrete against Canada at some point. Okay. So it is one of those things that formed off in the deep Pacific and has moved across. And it's at a rate of, you know, a couple centimeters a year, I think, you know, it's, which is relatively fast. Pulling ass. Know? <laughs> yeah. As, as far as, as, as landmasses yeah, go. Right. Yeah. And again, I'm not an expert. And so, you know, don't double check all these figures but um and so oregon kept accreting and like the klamath mountains are very similar geology to the Wallawa mountains and uh formed in the same area and have the same kind of um, geology and there was a guy who was a professor i think in iowa who lived in lewiston up until he passed away just a couple years ago tracy valier who has a book out called Islands and Rapids, and it's not light reading. It's a it's a scientific mm. geology map of Hell's Canyon, and he spent his whole life looking at Hell's Canyon. And he also went out on research vessels and went over to like the Marianas Trench, and they took samples over there and the Klamath Mountains, etc. And so, you know, if you're down there at Big Bar, go right before you get to Hell's Canyon Dam, there's that big limestone outcrop there that lots of climbers like to go down and, and visit. And there was a professor from University of Montana in Missoula that has gone there and collected all kinds of seashells, fossils, and out of the limestone and aged them and looked at them. And it's part of the evidence of this... Uh, migration of land across the ocean and to hitting uh you know and we're able to age these events and so you have like the seven devils is part of that uplift uh the Wallawa eagle cap mountains is another part of that uplift and then a third and these are like separate events and uh geologies are not all exactly the same but they're all from the same kind of principle of this plate tectonics and the Elkhorn Mountains are also and so you have these three different uh spots just in our home country here that uh, are all a result of this migration of land across the ocean and they're all they're they're not
0: mountain ranges like you see in most of the country they're they're islands
1: yeah island arcs is what they like to call them yeah and uh so yeah, like the Rockies go from northern from the Yukon clear down to into Mexico, right? Where that we have these, yeah, sh- you, you can see all. You know, we were just standing out in your yard here looking at the Wallawas and you can basically see the whole range. It's start like, it's to like a tooth. It's like a tooth. Yeah, and so is the Seven Devils. You know, you can basically see where they start just north of New Meadows, and or yeah, north of New Meadows, and they end south of Whitebird there, and um, or at Whitebird. And so it's made these, what I think is one of the greatest things of living in this country is the diversity of ecotypes that you have, where you can go out there and climb up on Ruby Peak and, or Sacagawea and be at Alpine, you know, above the Timberline or right at Timberline, and then you can drop down into Subalpine and then to the montane, the, the Grand fir story and then you just keep going down and you're pretty soon you're in prickly pear cactus and uh, uh, you're in the desert habitat and there's not very many places where you can get in such a small mileage area such a diversity of habitats and you look at Zumwalt Prairie and all these different things you know. Yeah we go from 10,000 feet to 750 in about 40 miles. Yeah right and it just makes a fascinating. For people who like natural history, like yourself and myself, it's a fascinating place to live and to investigate, you know, wildlife and botany and wild rivers, you know, and uh, I, I love tracking
0: and, you know, I, I have to do that for work. I get to do that for work in, in a, a variety of ways, but one of the, the early books that I read on tracking was written by a guy named Tom Brown Jr., And I've read his stuff. Yeah. Some of it's very good. Some of it's a bit much. Yeah. But something that I, that I remembered early on from that was him talking about the landscape as a track of the history of the planet. And when I read that, I started looking around literally. Yeah. I was like, okay, I can see that. Like, this is a track. How did it occur? What caused this? And it's not just the downward pressure of the foot of an animal. um, But downward pressure of gravity yeah yeah lots of pressure 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 from a variety of directions over a different period of time and I love it I love thinking about it like that and Hell's Canyon um, is a place that's you know very near and dear to me it's it's part of my family's history and it's a place that I go for for recreation it's a place that I go for food um, and it's a place that I go
1: in my imagination a lot yeah right so and I feel the same way. Yeah. It is really, it's a second home to me, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, that's a place I probably would like to have my ashes scattered is yeah. in Hell's Canyon, you know, and because yeah. uh, it's a meaningful place to me. I've spent a lot of time down there.
0: So mm-hmm. we're we're at three hundred million years ago, um, and then moving forward, Oregon is coming out of the ocean, and we have these these Baffleth mountain ranges popping up like teeth in a couple of different places. Right. And then how does the canyon itself form? Like, what is this? Well, rich? we've
1: had, uh, you know, it's like the Grand Canyon. This water is a, a big knife that yeah. removes material and uh, dado blade. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of my favorite things to show people is right below Pittsburgh Landing when you're just turning the corner into what I call Black Canyon there, um, you have that pillow lava. And uh, the geologists, according to the stories that I've been told, the geologists, like Tracy Vallier, came around the corner, and they looked at this pillow of lava, and they go, wait a minute, this only forms under the pressure of the ocean, and we're 350, 400 miles away from the ocean. Mm -hmm. How do we get this? And so... You can see that evidence there, but then, you know, you just go up into the Seven Devils a little bit and you have a whole, like you said, the batholith of Idaho and granite and crystals and uh, gold, you know, all those gold miners over on the Salmon River. So we've had those big events, too, of flooding the Bonneville Lake, which uh, Great Salt Lake is the mud puddle left behind. Uh, Bonneville... At the end of the last ice age, twenty to 15,000 years ago, and as, you know, water that was locked up in ice starts evaporating and forming rain, and it starts raining into Bonneville Lake, it raises the lake level, and it floods over a pass down by Pocatello, Idaho, called Red Rock Pass, and it's like pulling the plug in the bathtub. And it started running across that Bonneville Lake, uh, inland ocean, that goes across North, you know, Utah, Nevada, and even parts of southern, southeast Oregon. And it started draining across Red Rock Pass. And figures that I've heard is that at one point, you know, I, I like to tell guests when I'm down there when I'm talking about the Bonneville Flood, you know, we're floating at 15,000 cubic feet per second or 20,000, you know, and some of those really, the highest I ever floated in Hell's Canyon was at 75,000 to, between 75 and 80,000 cubic feet per second. Which was I, I passed on that trip. Yeah, that was a scary trip. <laughs> I don't um, regret passing on no, that trip. I, I, I'm glad I went, but I almost pulled out with the shuttle drivers <laughs> when we were there. I got, I got a little wet and uh, a little weak in the knees. Yeah. But I went on that trip, and that's the highest I've ever been on. And But you tell people when you're floating down there, like right before water spout, and you have this evidence of those benches down there uh, below Bernard Creek. What What, what is a bench? Because... A bench is a big bar or flat spot. Like, I always use these words benches and bars, and I have to define them for guests. Like, a bar is a little flat spot where it's above the high water level, and you, it's a place where we camp, you know, yeah. like Oregon Hole or Saddle Creek or whatever, you know, and sometimes they're underwater. But, um, and a bench is a bigger bar, And these benches are up above the water level, but the benches that I'm referring to down there by water spout that are very visible are long flat spots that are 100 feet off the level of the river. Right. And so you say to a guest, well, we're floating at 15,000 cubic feet per second. When the Bonneville flood started flooding and they pulled the plug out of the bathtub there. The stories that I've read and heard, figures, are that it was between 2 and 20 million cubic feet per second for a long period of time, continuous. Where, if you compare it to the Scablands of Washington, which were formed by the Missoula flood, which was when the, the ice dam on the Clark Fork River would melt and then flood down the Clark Fork into uh, Sandpoint area and down across the Scablands of Washington and just scour that country. And there's rocks outside of Portland there. What is it? Beacon Hill has erosion from that Lake Missoula flood. Well, that was episodic because it'd melt and refreeze in the winter, then melt in the summer. And so you'd have these episodic floods that would be you know, flood now, then stop flooding because it's frozen in the glacier that ice dam would refreeze. Bonneville flood was not episodic. It was continuous flood and washed down the river and formed these bars. And right before you turn the corner to go into water spout, if you look on the right, there's a big spout if you, and if you're an experienced river person like yourself you can look up there and see the eddy marks where there was a giant eddy that scoured away the lava and uh or that old uh exotic terrain and there is a huge boulder that is just sitting there on a little that was deposited and it was like a pebble in the flood right you know but it was it's probably a 100 ton rock and uh, that's just was deposited up there 50 feet above the level of the river now. And, you know, so you had this, this continuous flood that did a lot, that probably shaped a lot of the lower Mnaha and Hell's Canyon and the Grand Ron, where that backwashed up those river drainages and, uh, and all the little creeks and stuff. And so I think that was one of the real instrumental parts in how, what modern-day Hell's Canyon looks like pre dam. You know,
0: so. Yeah. There's a lot of guys that think that that stuff happened after, uh, after a meteor hit one of the ice caps. And, you know, we had this, this Pleistocene ice age that had lasted for millions of years. And then it ended relatively quickly. And, you know, the numbers that we see are from like 11,800 years ago to, you know, 12,400 years ago. It's a pretty precise time frame, And, uh. You know, if it had hit an ice cap that melted, then there wouldn't necessarily be a lot of geological evidence. Yeah. Um,
1: I have not heard that theory. That's interesting.
0: But like the Missoula flood, you know, it's so fun for me to think about, and I I think about it from a number of perspectives. But when when that occurred for the first time, when it finally broke loose, and it was episodic, like you say. It was six times greater than all of the rivers of the world combined. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And if you fly over eastern Washington, central Washington, you can see those ripple marks. I mean, we're not talking about a little stream. We're talking about an ocean crossing that whole terrain, you know.
0: And and something like 20 million cubic feet per second. Like, that's an impossible thing for us to imagine. Oh, yeah. You
1: can't imagine one million of anything. We we, we can't
0: figure it out. Um, One cubic foot of water is about the size of a basketball right um i don't know how many gallons that is three maybe i don't know yeah something so let, let's say it's three gallons hate me if i'm wrong that's 24 pounds of water okay moving every second so if we talk about the snake river at that flood stage that you and i were just talking about 75,000, and then you add the salmon river in which i think was bomb- running like,
1: about a hundred at the time yeah
0: so by the time it's you're getting to Lewiston, Idaho, uh, you're looking at like 200,000 cubic feet of water per, of per water. second. I've always wanted somebody to tell me, in terms of nuclear energy, what what CFS means. Like, how many CFS do I need to equal one atomic bomb?
1: Uh, interesting. That'd be interesting to know.
0: Because I think that the energy that the Snake River possessed at that time was atomic bombs per second.
1: Oh yeah, multiple. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I would agree that you were talking. Yeah, if just energy equivalence would be very interesting too. I'm not smart enough to figure it out. But Neither hope, am I. Hopefully, somebody that's and I'm not listening a good to enough mathematician. Until <laughs> I taught science. Wait, were you a math teacher? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I never taught math. <laughs>
0: Okay. So we have this tremendous flood event and it, it happens over a period of years, whatever caused it, caused it. It was definitely carbon going into the atmosphere. How that carbon got into the atmosphere, we, we don't know for sure whether it was bubbles and ice that were released or whether it was an event. It was definitely carbon going into the atmosphere that allowed the earth to heat, um, that caused this melting and sea levels raised. Uh, part of you know what I wanted to get into, this is like a a, a near and dear uh, theory for me. In the Columbia River, I think that there was probably a bunch of civilizations along that river. and I think that there are species that were living in that river corridor. and when it flooded, when that six times greater than all of the rivers of the world flood occurred, I think we lost entire civilizations and entire species. I think that they were gone in a wave.
1: I, I think we have evidence of some of that. You know, and whether it was just the climate changing or if it was these horrendous events, you know, apocalyptic events like uh, six-time river flood. But we have evidence of that, like on the Mnaha and down in Hell's Canyon, of that. One of the things I love to take uh, sophomore biology students down to is there at Fence Creek on the lower Amnaha and show them that McFarlane's four o'clock, which uh, Mirabilis McFarlanei, which is named after the old riverboat captain, Ed McFarlane. And he showed it to a botanist from New York, from the New York Botanical Society, who was doing early botany in Hell's Canyon, and Ed would pick the guy up and drop him off with his camp and then come back and get him and bring him supplies and everything, and one time they were sitting around, probably like you and I are, having a drink, and McFarland said, so have you seen this one? And he described this little magenta flower to the guy, and he goes, no, he goes, I have not seen this, and so Ed took him probably to Pittsburgh Landing, or down by Tryon, there's populations of this m- Mirabilis and showed it to him. And so he took what's called the voucher species of Mirabilis and pressed the plant and took it back. And he named it after Ed McFarland. So it's Mirabilis is the genus and the species is McFarlandiae. And where it exists is like at Pax Addle Creek and down there at Fence Creek. It's very hot and harsh soils, and it's a succulent, and it lays prostate on the ground, and it has the most beautiful trumpet four o'clock flowers. There's only, I think, if I correct remember right, I think there's 17 known populations in the world, all either one or two on the Salmon River, several in Hell's, and several on the Anaha. and that's the only places they are. Well, what I used to tell the sophomores in biology classes don't you think that there was greater populations of these you know weren't they widespread at one point yeah. in time and i'm sure that they were down along the it's like the little uh, barrel cactuses that are on cactus mountain that i really do not tell people where those are because uh, people dig them up and take them home to put in their flower beds but uh, they're very unique and there's only i think three known populations of those in Oregon, and one of which is down by Umatilla, pretty close to the river. Right. And so what you're saying really makes sense is that these floods probably wiped out large amounts of things that, and probably things that we don't even know ever existed unless we get into the fossil sure. record or something like that. And I think
0: Ibex is one of them. Ibex, yeah. Yeah.
1: Could be. I mean, you know. So you look
0: at petroglyphs in Mongolia. And they're like, yes, those are Ibex, 100%. They have a tail that points up. They have horns that sweep all the way back to their butt. That is an Ibex, Ibex. You look at those same glyphs that are in the Columbia River, they look identical. They're not bighorns. No, they're yeah. carving into rock, Yeah, man. right. Like, you don't exaggerate when you have to chisel stuff yeah, into rock. right. But everybody's like, nope, those are bighorn sheep now. Like, well, they look just like the Ibex in Mongolia. <laughs> But how easy would it be to lose a species like that in a flood?
1: Yeah. Really easy. You could lose them all. Yeah. Especially if they're on that habitat. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's an interesting concept. It's like pronghorns, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, why are they so unique? Right. You know. Yeah. They're that, not related to anything else here. That's you an know? enigma. Why yeah. so fast? Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> because there used to be cheetahs here. Yeah. And there's no cheetahs here now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So now we're getting into the... The human side of the story a little bit. Um, and I think that the human side of the story really needs to start in the neighboring canyon in the salmon river.
1: Oh yeah. At uh what what's that called? Cooper's Creek. Yeah. Co- yeah. Co- Cooper Cooper Creek. Bar Cooper at, Ferry. Cooper Cooper yeah. Bar,
0: Cooper Ferry at Graves Creek. Yeah. Um so there's a dig there. There's an archaeological dig that's Which been Which has now ended. It is ended.
1: Yeah, it has ended. Okay. Just uh summer before last, it was like the last summer. Okay. Know? I got to be there when
0: they found a Wolverine bone.
1: Oh, nice. when they found a Wolverine jawbone. I did see that jawbone. That they, yeah. I wasn't there when they dug it up.
0: But, yeah, mm. uh, I got to see the thing, and I I just read two weeks ago that the layer above that, the hearth above that, they dated at sixteen thousand years old. Yeah. So the Wolverine, they found four Wolverine jaws below that. This is the oldest evidence of humans in Western North America.
1: Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's pushed things back, you know, where yeah. they used to say, what, 12,000 years ago or something. Then sure. they found the coprolites uh, fossilized human dung uh, in the uh, Paisley Caves, and that pushed it to like 14,000 years. And then Lauren, I can't remember Lauren, the professor from Oregon State that ran the dig. He and I got to be pretty chummy over the years when I take guests in there. but um, And I I would really ask, I say, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, the listeners to this podcast is there is a wonderful website on Oregon State University's uh, Archaeology College, uh, and it's Professor Lauren something, I don't remember his last name, but it is well-documented, this dig that uh, we're talking about, and with lots of pictures and lots of, of artifacts, points, and all kinds of stuff, bones. And these spear points, the closest example to these same
0: spear points come from Japan. Yeah. So the thinking is not the Clovis first theory of people coming across Beringia and then waiting for the Cordilleran ice sheet to recede. The ice free corridor. Coming down, right? That was the theory that we all grew up with. Now, what we're working with is this over the ice theory that people came from like France to the East Coast maybe 30,000 years ago, walked across Arctic yeah. ice. And also that people came from Japan in boats would have come up the Columbia River, up the Snake River, up the Salmon River. Yeah. And then made camp here at Graves Creek, fifty-four miles away from where we're talking right now. Yeah, right. And somebody was gangster enough to kill wolverines for fun yeah. and bring their jaws back to the fire.
1: Yeah, well, let's eat some wolverine, right? Which couldn't been that delectable,
0: <laughs> but definitely, uh, definitely still in the Ice Age at that point, which oh, explains yeah. why wolverines are are this far south and in numbers enough to show up yeah. frequently. Um, it's, it's very interesting. So I think part of the human story is that people have been here in these canyons. There's evidence of it longer than there's evidence of these people being anywhere else in maybe, Western North America.
1: Maybe as long as 20,000 years. Yeah. yeah. I'm amazed that they stopped digging. Uh, I think, I'm, I'm just conjecturing, but I think that the funding ran out. And they may have got to the point where they weren't finding anything. Yes, yeah. and I don't know. Yeah, that's just conjecture on my part. But I was I was very sad that they stopped. I I think I did six trips on the salmon last summer, and you know it just kind of leaves a hole in that trip when you can't stop at that dig and show people that stuff. And they get a bandana from the students. It was wonderful. Sort of they had a number it was of
0: wonderful. universities there. They had yeah. tribes there, and they were very happy to to talk to. You know, all of the clients that were on the raft trips and explain what was going on. And, you know, even some of the people that I talked to from that area are relatively
1: unaware of of what was going on there. And it seems like very big news to me. Yeah, uh, to me also. Uh, I don't know if you did any of those trips with, I know your grandmother did, with, uh, what's Craig's last name? Um, The author. I did. Yeah. Yeah. But... Craig uh, has a couple. What the heck's his last name, James?
0: It's been since before I was in the Marines
1: since I yeah. took him downriver. Uh,
0: I took him down the salmon. We had the lightning storm
1: of all lightning storms on that trip. Cool. It was like him and his wife and his son. I took him down twice, and once with your grandmother on those fish trap riding trips. And after the first trip, and I was going to uh, go float the Grand Canyon right a couple weeks after that trip ended in september and i thought well i need a couple books to read while we're doing a 20-day trip in the grand canyon i need a book and uh, so i went and bought a couple of craig's books and one was on the peopling of North America, mm-hmm. his research on it. And what I like about him is he goes to places where he's writing about. Yeah, Like he went down the coastline of Alaska. Mm-hmm. He went to Cooper's Ferry, probably with you. He went, you know, all these, down to where the Clovis points were, and all this, these different things. And so just a side note story, it's kind of fun, is uh, my son-in-law is from Phoenix. And I was meeting Caitlin and Sam. Caitlin, my daughter, uh, were travel nursing, and I met them in Arizona in Phoenix at Sam's parents' house. And I got there, flew into Phoenix, and threw this book on the coffee table one morning. We were spending a couple days in Phoenix outfitting for the trip. And I threw this book down on the coffee table in the living room, and Sam's dad picked it up. And he goes, oh. I had a kid in my youth group in Denver by this name. Mm-hmm. He goes, I wonder if it's the uh, uh, same guy. And I said, I know that he grew up in Colorado. Uh, and so he had just friended me on Facebook. So I shot him a message on Facebook and said, yeah, did you know Ken Wells? Was he a youth group advisor of yours? And and in, indeed he was. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So, But anyway, he uh, has written this book. Book on the peopling of North America, which is very fascinating. Well, you talk about Clovis, and that theory has just basically been debunked. Yeah, you know, it's gone. It's, yeah, it's gone. Yeah, you
0: know. yeah, which is fun, uh, unless like you really invested time into believing that that was. <laughs> yeah. You were the guy <laughs> who wrote the papers. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, probably oh, not shit. not fun yeah. for them. But no, that lightning <laughs> storm. Subsequently, if it's the same guy, I'm thinking of. I was already signed up for the Marines and it there was so much lightning it was arcing from one canyon wall to the next. We had Saint Elmo's fire on oh, man on uh, on a tree on the beach. There was blue static going between all the limb tips all around the tree and you know lightning was so bright it was about midnight that uh, I I could read a book by the lightning. It was so bright and so constant that <laughs> there wasn't darkness in the sky. Those are storms to be
1: remembered for a long period really of your Really to life. be remembered. Yeah.
0: yeah. And Todd and Morgan were the other guides on the trip, and they were under a wing, like holding this wing down, <laughs> you know, for dear life uh, with the clients, and they were really scared. And I just thought, well, if it's going to get me, it's going to get me. And I went and sat on the beach and enjoyed the show. Yeah, right. And it was also the point, and this is misguided, and it's not backed up by anything, but it was the point where I I, I thought – Um, I knew I was going to war and I thought, well, I'm not going to die there because if I was going to die there, I'm going to die right here by (laughs) lightning strike. And, uh, that was actually a thought that I carried with me and, and it's like a vision quest a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're in that intensive a situation, you're really limited on options for how you can mentally deal with it.
1: You are. And it's like, you know, I, I can't tell you how many different times I've been in these storms on the river. And it's like when a thunderstorm sweeps over and you're in the boat and you're still 10 miles from camp. And it's like, and people are going, so what are we going to do? And it's like, probably just keep floating down the river because yeah. it's probably our safest option right now to sit in this rubber boat. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you guys want to do? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Should we go sit under a tree? <laughs> you know, which is probably not the yeah. best idea. Uh, Craig Childs. Yeah, that's right. Craig Childs. That's right. Uh, I recommend his books to all your listeners. He's a fantastic uh, author. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so what do you know about uh, Nez Perce history in the canyon? Well, we know that, you know, the uh, Nez Perce bands were scattered around this country. We had the Wallawa Band. We had the uh, band over there on the confluence of the Grand Ron. you know, the Asotan Band and down by lapway you know or spalding and whitman they kind of came across and spalding uh, christianized some of the Nespers there around lapway and we know that summer times they went to the high country just like the deer and the elk you know it went up where it's cooler and there's berries and uh roots to dig and uh then in the winter, it's like, we're not going to stay here where there's six feet of snow. And winter lasts from November to April. So they went down to the canyons, and, uh, and we had all those fish. I mean, it was just a constant flow of protein in those rivers. You know, you had Chinook, king salmon. You had coho salmon. You had sockeye salmon. You had steelhead And it was just a constant flow of protein. So we know that these camps, you know, I love to play poker. And I love to play poker with Bruce Womack, the old Forest Service archaeologist. And he's a crusty old bastard. But uh, I love Bruce. And he has spent a lot of time. Doing archaeology for the government in Hell's Canyon, and told me lots of stories about his digs down there, and explorations. And he won't he won't share with me a lot of locations. It's kind of like me at the barrel cactus. It's like, no, I don't think we need to have everybody knowing where all these things are. But he will share things that he found. And like there at Chimney Bar, where you know we like I like to have lunch, and there's that uh, nice shade at noon, one o'clock right out of the entrance of that cave that's right there. And there's the Big Depression there. Well, it's a pit house. It's Mm -hmm. a former pit house. Now it has a hackberry tree growing out of it. But supposedly when they excavated that pit house, they found the remnants of a buckskin bag and some points on a little shelf down there in the bottom of that pit house. Mm -hmm. And so we know that there's, you know, all kinds of artifacts that, point to indigenous use of the canyon and the pictographs and the petroglyphs and stuff more pictographs than petroglyphs you know carvings versus paintings that i know of i don't know of that many carvings there it seems like the lower you get in the river the more carving you find right. you know and uh, you know like buffalo Eddy is right. a great spot for petroglyphs and mexican hat there at pittsburgh landing is a great spot to see a petroglyph a lot of them were also at at Rapids, which would have been places where yeah. fish bottlenecked. They were bit. fish bottlenecked. And, you know, someone, I don't know if it was Bruce or Craig Childs or someone who's done a lot of talking with indigenous people and following their history and belief systems, that um, Rapids are also places of power, mm. you know, yeah, uh, energy. Yeah. I mean, there's always, I mean... You know as well as I do to stand up above wild sheep rapid or uh, granite at a flow that's not so comforting that there's a lot of energy going in the air that right around there yep. you know and uh, so you know you could draw your spirit you know you talk about sitting there watching the lightning and I said vision quest yeah well you can imagine indigenous people traveling and just sitting there when the river's at 75 thousand or eighty thousand and 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 not controlled by a dam right and uh you're sitting there wondering is there going to be any salmon left tomorrow after this goes through you know type of thing but um um you know one of the stories you know there's battle creek you know i love that cabin at battle creek and it's even though it's only four miles down from the dam i love to camp there just because it's such a cool camp and i like to take guests up to the cabin at battle creek and there's two different stories about how it was named Battle Creek. One is about the two old prospectors or trappers or whatever that wintered there at uh, the cabin, and they got cabin fever and wanted to kill each other. And so one guy said he was taking his half of the supplies and leaving and took an axe and cut a bag of flour in half and then supposedly took off. And so that's one story of how Battle Creek got its name. But the other story is that uh, the Bannock and the nespers had a battle there and uh you know tribal warring and in fact i was just talking to some people last night about uh you know and someone said well weren't the nespers relatively friendly because they didn't you know try and erase out the white people and it's like yeah but they were still a warrior culture you know they still traveled to the plains and you didn't probably want to be a flathead or a crow indian who ran into a party of nez first buffalo hunters It probably wouldn't end well or vice versa or vice yeah. versa yeah there's going to be conflict it's wor- the warrior cultures yeah. you know and that's just how that indigenous cultures were and so that's the only story that i know of, of though of uh tribal warfare in the canyon yeah. is that story of battle creek there it'd be a tough place to fight oh yeah yeah Get to, the, get you're the, not
0: gonna get out of there very easy. Get the high ground. <laughs> like, that's that's yeah. what you're that's what you're racing against. Yeah. And and in hunting, uh, that's largely what you're racing against too. Like you're this the species is much more easily defeated than the terrain. Like if you can beat the terrain if you're
1: hunting down there, you can win. Yeah. 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 I, you know started guiding down there. And had done a couple river trips with the old math teacher from Enterprise, Ken Blanchard, who was the first Forest Service jet boat operator down mm. there. And Ken was the first person that ever took me down Hell's Canyon in, I think, 88. So my experience in the beginning in Hell's Canyon was just on the water. But then I started going in with Paul Charette and elk hunting uh, on the benches. You know, and I'm not talking the benches made by the... Bonneville flood but what they call that bench country that flat benches in the canyon that are uh, mid-slope you know or, or towards the upper slopes and then to pack horses in and we'd try, we'd take horses and mules into Doug Bar, and then pack in and spend a week 10 days elk hunting in fact Patrick Shot uh, four or five elk before he was 18 years of age in yeah. Hell's Canyon and packed him out of there. And yeah.
0: It, it was a factory for elk for a long time. Oh, yeah. I just wrote an article uh, for Outdoor Life today about um, about elk and wolves and interviewed a gentleman from ODFW who's a research scientist. His name's Darren Clark and asked him what recruitment is required um, to sustain an elk population just to maintain. Yeah. And it's uh, 15 to 20 um, calves per hundred. That's what you need for maintenance. If you get closer to 20, that's where you can start seeing incre- incremental Increase growth. Increase in the population. Um, but for the last three years, which is generally what's considered required to establish a trend for wildlife populations, we've been in the single digits in Hell's Canyon.
1: Now that's really bad news because, yeah, you know, it's one of my favorite places and one of the, things i love best is hunting elk in yeah. the hell's canyon i've yeah. got i i packed a mule in there by myself once for a week and a half and it was probably one of the highlight hunts i've ever done yeah and one of the worst things i think ever happened to uh all of us locals who like to hunt hell's canyon was that video uh 10 days in purgatory and those guys did the video of Backpacking in Hell's Canyon. And right after that, it was like a flood of people yeah. bow hunting in Hell's Canyon. Yeah, and they got in trouble for that. Um, they weren't supposed to do that. Yeah, they didn't have yeah, yeah. some different permits that they right. needed and that kind of stuff. Yeah, well,
0: whatever. Yeah. Enough about them. Yeah, right. Uh, okay, so some early homesteaders in the canyon.
1: Uh, there's such a rich history, and this is where I wished. You know, Jordan Manley was sitting here with us because he has a fabulous memory for people's names. But, um, you know, people always say to me, you know, you take him to those cabins at Battle Creek or Bernard Creek. One of the things I like about going to Bernard Creek and looking at that old uh, house that's on the historical registry is that there's grapes growing in the front yard, there's a lilac bush growing there, and I've gathered hollyhock seeds that I've planted at my house from out there on that just scabby ground out in front of the cabin there. And they have all that equipment that's sitting around out there. There's a a buck rake and there's an old wagon frame there, axles of a wagon. And people go, why would anybody come down here and try and live, you know, try and eat out a living? And it's like, well, it was the Homestead Act and you could get free land. And they were late. And they were late. Yeah. And they were late. And a lot of these people came during the Depression or right prior to the Depression. Like you said, there was nowhere else to go or all the other, the good flat ground was gone. Prairie Creek got taken. (laughs) Prairie Creek was gone, you know, pretty early. And, uh, you know, the Six Ranch land. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. that, That was gone, you know, so... I guess we're not going to be here. You can go down to Hell's Canyon and <laughs> yeah. try and establish a home site. Let you know? me tell you
0: about Doug Barr. <laughs> yeah,
1: <right. laughs> the well, snakes it's like, love it. You know, you know, the Johnson family. And, uh, you know, I love to tell the stories about uh, the Johnsons and the sheep ranching down there. And uh, I'm, I'm going to have Annalise on the show oh that's good yeah. so you'll need to have i don't know if she knows it. that yet or not yeah, but that, it's gonna happen that'd be great yeah well you should have her dad come too and sit yeah, with her and that'd do be fun. that that would be good i've always wanted to take greg johnson and a couple of those old outfitters like george hopman and uh and maybe like joe mccormick and just go down the river and have stories yeah. you know around campfires yeah. you know just sit down there and You know, and I don't know if I could get them all together to do it or not, but it'd sure be fun to just sit there and eavesdrop on the conversations of stories, you know. Yeah. Because I I would say that 90% of the stories I know about Hell's Canyon either came from Kurt Armacost, who grew up in the canyon, who was the first outfitter I worked for, or George Hopman out of Halfway, who started outfitting down there in the 70s. And uh, both of those guys are just a wealth of knowledge Mm. about that canyon. But the homesteaders, you know, they're at Bernard Creek. They had that a cabin up top on the Idaho side. And they would drive their cows up in the summer. And then they would... Uh, Need a little more scotch?
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Take just a snifter there. It's not going to drink itself, you know. Yeah.
0: Thank you, uh, Major William Mahone Sixth, for providing
1: the scotch. Oh, nice. Yeah. So um, they would take their cows up to in the summer up to that high country and then come down in the winter but someone had to stay down and take care of the garden that they had down there by the river too and they had hay ground down there it's evidenced by the buck rake down there and they had an irrigation ditch over there where you put the tents on the other side of the creek from the house their old alfalfa still comes up is volunteering up there in that flat area up there and uh, so they put up a little bit of hay even though you know they didn't have to have a lot of hay but i know that your grandmother and i talked about that winter i think it was like 57 or 59 or something when the snow came into hell's canyon and put down like two or three feet of snow and the oregon national guard actually flew hay and tried to save some cows and sheep that were down in there Mm -hmm. but hundreds of animals died if not thousands of animals in that winter time and uh, because Either they couldn't get to them with hay or they just didn't put, you know, a lot of guys didn't put up much hay for because right. there was always grass available, yep. you know. Always a bunch of grass. Always a bunch of grass, so. What do you know about the folks who lived at Somers Creek? I know that the, there was two cabins connected by a dog trot between the two. And uh, that the old couple that lived there last were, I mean, like maybe in the 90s or something like that. They were very old. And uh, when they passed, nobody ever came down there. And then that one of those fires since 90, you know, I don't remember which fire it was, took that cabin out of there, you know. And uh, so... That's about all I know of that story. There, is well, they, that, they would have been kicked out in seventy four, right? When the well, the, went, yeah, eminent yeah, eminent if, domain. probably if they you know the eminent domain, that might have yeah. been there, because uh, you know the Johnson family, you know, they lost ownership, but they were allowed to lease back their property and keep because the original Hell's Canyon uh, recreational area act, uh, which was Hell's Canyon, was the first one. Allowed for traditional uses of grazing and logging and that sort of thing. So the Johnson family, I think, left down there in '84 after some. I don't know. I don't know the exact story. I don't want to talk about it. Okay. You know. So.
0: So I was bear hunting in that Somers area, and I had heard a story that, and I don't know which family this was that was living there, but um, the old man was a drunk, and he'd go to him and come back and um, and he beat his wife, and one day she met him with a shotgun and killed him. Oh, really, yeah, so I was about a mile away from there, and I found what looked to me as an unmistakably shallow grave, and that pickhead right next to you was laying next to it, really. And I'm not one for packing heavy stuff out of the hills. Yeah, right. If <laughs> it <laughs> can be avoided. <laughs> yeah. So let's put a pick in our pack. But yeah. that, you know, since I'd heard that story, I was like, I wonder if she didn't drag him over here to this gulch, dig enough of a grave to keep the coyotes off of him, drop the pick, and leave that life behind.
1: Yeah, maybe. You know, when the story that I just told you about the old couple, it's not Somers Creek. It's up there at Rush Creek. Um, what's the other creek that starts with the nest there? Um, but anyway, I, I had my names crossed up. But um, yeah, Somers Creek, gets such an interesting area because when you, if you like, you know, we've camped at Salt Creek so often, and you can hike up above Salt Creek to the old schoolhouse spot. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a spring up there, and I've only hiked up there a couple times but you can get up on the ridge there and you can see one of the things I love about that hike is you get up on top there where that old schoolhouse was and there's a little ridge above there and you climb up on that ridge we can see the he devil on the seven devil side and you can see hat point and it's one of the few places I know Mm. where on the river you can see both at one spot you can see both of the highest points on both sides of the river yeah and uh supposedly those kids would ride their horses up to that damn school you know you know so i always go you know and i haven't been able to substantiate which kids went to that school and how long it was in use or not but i know that they uh after the school closed down after you know 74 or whatever, that uh people went up there and got the lumber for other uses Mm -hmm. and tore that schoolhouse apart or burned it down or whatever. But it's like always just fascinated me that, can you imagine sending uh, Billy and Janie off on the old gray mare and they have to ride up to you know, from the river trail up to that old schoolhouse up there in the benches, you know, and it's like, and I think they stayed there for the week. They didn't ride back and forth yeah. to the ranches every day, right. you know, there's no school bus. And uh, so.
0: I was hiking up, uh, I won't say the exact name because it's another spot that I hunt, but another part of the canyon, lower down. And I, the bench there is particularly high. And it took me about four hours to get up to the bench from and, the river, from the river. Yeah. And that's where I, I was going to start glassing. And by the time I got up to the bench, I was just whooped, you yeah, know, because right. it is you know, steeper than a cow's face yeah, all right. the way up there. And I got to this bench. I was like, I'm not glassing very far. Like <laughs> yeah. if, if I <laughs> can't maybe like, back to the boat, basically <laughs> shoot it from here, then it's going to be safe. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I'm sure there's people out there like, oh, you hiked four hours and called it quits, huh? Like, yep, I did. And I think you might too. Yeah,
1: have you hiked Hell's Canyon?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the steepest (laughs) gorge in North America. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so I get up there and I'm absolutely whooped and I'm, you know, thinking weak thoughts, um, you know, not saying particularly nice things about myself to myself. And I look over and I see these rose bushes that are covering some metal and I go over there and there is a bunch of hay equipment. Yeah. On this bench that might've been, I don't know, 15 acres. And I thought this is what you had to do to get to work.
1: (laughs) 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 No, thank you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So hard, but you know, where you're talking about um, Salt Creek, where you can look up, and, you know, that if you're going upriver, that's the first place that you can really see Hat Point. Yeah. Um, that was Papa Doug's cue to turn around, because um, he had that, you know, 22-foot riddle sled yep. um, with an outboard, sometimes jet, usually prop on it. He
1: was it. smart enough not to go up through Rush Creek. Yeah.
0: Yep. Um, so going to Rush Creek, there was no point in it. He would go up until he could see hat point and that's as far up river as he ever needed to go. Right. But they were killing like 44 point bucks a year from that boat out of Doug bar. Like clients, clients would show up, they'd get in the boat, he'd run them up river. They'd get out, go hike up the bench, shoot a deer, drag it back to the river. It was a factory for deer. The heyday of mule deer. And I can be down there like, well, I spent six days in there bear hunting last spring. I saw three mule deer in six days, maybe thirty whitetail.
1: It's so sad. Well, and there used to never be whitetail down. No, there. that's a new thing. You know, yeah, dirty ass it, whitetail. <laughs> uh, and I love hunting whitetail, but I don't want to hunt them in Hell's Canyon. You know, I want to go see big mule deer down there. Yeah, and it's just and they're
0: big down there i mean it's a really young population they're getting smoked by lions and wolves and every other thing but
1: yeah and you know more and more pressure from hunters in the canyon you know it's just like you know people realize that they can go down there you know lightweight hunting equipment and more people talking about going to you know there's just a whole different clientele of hunters than when i grew up of you know 80% 80% of the people would never get off the road very far, you know, from their truck, you know. Sure. And now there's people with all the lightweight equipment that have no problem in hiking five or six miles, 10 miles from their truck and hunting, you know. And so you're getting pressure in places that used to be kind of a refuge except for the, the few that had horses and mules and stuff yeah. like that, Yeah. You know? so... Uh, that, it's a, one it, of the greatest stories, I think, in Hell's Canyon is yeah. that story of the irrigating of the Idaho side of uh, Temperance Creek, uh, their hayfield there. Yeah, tell me about that. And when the Johnsons, Ken Johnson, the old man who homesteaded that country, hired this little guy, like, what was his name? Do you remember? He had uh, a funny name. Yeah, like uh, Buzzy. Or again, we need that. Jordan Manley here, but. Um, He was like five foot tall and he was in his 80s and he dug this tunnel through the rock into Myers Creek so that they could put water pipe through the tunnel and gravity flood irrigate that upper bench. There's two benches there, Big Bar and um, the other Big Bar in Hell's Canyon. There's two big bars and uh, they raised alfalfa there on that upper bench. And well, it took him two years to dig that tunnel through there. Yeah, and uh, you know, I've told that story. I walked up there one time and went through the tunnel. And then two years ago, I was down there, I think, on a layover trip, and a couple of those young guides said, "Oh, we're going to go up to that cave. Where is it?" And I said, "Well, you just go straight up there, you know." And they went. We were camped at Myers Creek, and they went across the river, and hiked up there, and they came back and goes that cave is only two feet long. And I said, bullshit. I said, it's like, mm. you know, it's a long, it's a distance through there and you want a headlamp. And uh, you can knock your head on the ceiling if you're not careful, if you're tall. And, uh, oh no, we we looked through the cave and it's only, it's only like three or four feet, five feet. And I was like, no, no, I've been up there. I've walked through it. And unless I was hallucinating, which I wasn't, uh, it's a long cave and so they go well yeah and they wanted to argue with me and i all right i'm not going to argue with you but there is a cave up there that goes through you didn't find it so last year we did another layover camp there and same two guys they ended up going up there and finding the real water cave mm-hmm. and going through and uh so it hasn't fallen in or anything it hasn't yeah. fallen in and you can go all the way through that ridge between big bar and myers creek And there's some old irrigation pipe laying outside there. Wow! And and so that guy would use a hand chisel, a star chisel, and a hand sledge and bang that chisel, turn it a quarter turn, bang it, turn it a quarter turn, bang it, and drill a hole into the rock deep enough to put powder in there. And then do how many holes like that with a hand chisel and a sledge? And then load them up and wire them and get outside and blow it and then take a little wheelbarrow and a shovel and go in there and get that overburden and take it out and pour it out on the edges. And that overburden is still laying there. And um, and it took him two years to dig that tunnel through that solid rock. Solid rock. And uh, And then they put the pipe through there and irrigated that field. You know, so you had to be a man to farm in hell's canyon <laughs> then how, know, how did they get the hay out there was a uh, wooden slide they would uh they would rake it all up and then they'd shovel it down the slide and the story is that you know guys would be on the bottom pitching the hay up onto a, a wagon which they did and if they wanted it on the other side of the river to the oregon side where the lambing sheds were then they'd have to float it across the river but um or they'd put it up there where the airstrip is now on Big Bar, but supposedly, you know, they'd get bored and they'd find a rattlesnake up there and they're raking the hay, and so they'd slide a rattlesnake down to the guys down on the bottom there, just to wake them up, and make sure they're paying attention. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah,
0: wouldn't want that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I would. Uh, I don't know. I think I'd only have. A sense of humor about that the first time. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Quit sending rattlesnakes down. Yeah, yeah right. After that, I'm yeah. collecting them, and they're going to end up in your mattress. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: Paybacks are hell. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, uh, the the wildlife history there is is very interesting as well. And a fish that lives there, the native fish that is um, precious to both of us, is the sturgeon. The yeah, high sturgeon. Sturgeon evolved, you know, 220 to 65 million years ago. They're a living dinosaur, a really, really remarkable organism. And they live on the river bottom. They're not doing particularly well in Hell's Canyon. No,
1: because they're anadromous.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yep. So they need to be able to make it out to the ocean um, and come back. A lot of the fish that we have in there are over 100 years old. They are much, much older than the dams that are in place. There's a good chance that some of the fish that I've caught and released in there were also caught by my granddad when he was a little kid. Absolutely. You know? Just a really, really special and amazing thing. One of the species that the sturgeon depend upon very much is a lamprey, which can't navigate the ninety degree angles on a fish ladder. Papa Doug said that when Doug Barr would flood, um, that they would go out there and pick up buckets of lamprey. Really? Yeah, off of the where the and run, eat them? where the runway is. Now he hated eating
1: them. Yeah, right. They're really oily.
0: Yeah. He, I've tried them once in Portland. Yeah. yeah. He hated them. Um but there was no better sturgeon bait. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And he would uh he would hook him up on on big homemade hooks and he would have sections of rope tied to his hooks, put those lamprey on a piece of driftwood and put it and that eddy right there at Doug Bar, and when it got far enough out in the river, he'd pull it off the driftwood, go down to the bottom. And one of my favorite fish stories of all time is him talking. And he told me this many times in his life. But he caught a great big sturgeon there one time. It was tied on his set line, and he couldn't get it out out of the water. So he went back to the house, and he got his pony, and he brought his pony back down, and he dragged the fish out with his pony. And then he couldn't pick the fish up, so he had to cut it into pieces and bring it back on his pony one piece at a time. And what was interesting to me about this fish story, which makes it unique, is that when I remember him telling this as a little kid, this was a 12-foot sturgeon. It was a monster. It was the size of a ponderosa pine tree. By the time he died, it was a five-foot fish. Um, it's the only fish story I have ever encountered or that what, got reverse. smaller with time.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's probably a happy medium there in that story. There, yeah, it's probably a six-footer just like the rest <laughs> of them. <laughs> well, you know, you, we've all seen those pictures of sturgeon that have been pulled out, like in Marcy, Idaho, and yeah. stuff, by a team of mules that are twenty-one hundred pounds or whatever. Yeah, and you go, holy, it's the size of a freight train. Yeah, you know. So but I know I've uh, hooked uh, probably the same fish. Well, the biggest fish I've ever had a client catch was at Temperance Creek Eddy. And it was actually a forest fire burning on the other side of the river while we were watching the fire burn the timber while we were fishing. And we hooked this fish and the guy was, uh, had done a lot of fishing down in Baja and was a pretty good fisherman. And he was able to land this fish and we got out and we measured it with gearboat oars, which are 11 foot oars. And it was about a inch or two inches longer than the gearboat, boat or mm. and that's the biggest fish i have ever seen caught in hell's canyon it's and that would be 11, the that would be the biggest
0: fish in the river because of the fish that have been surveyed through
1: idaho power that's what i've heard it's like ten, 14 feet maybe 10 six 10 six 10 six yeah and i just don't think they're getting those big ones in their survey you know it could for, be yeah yeah but i know that at salt creek at least four different times twice i've been spooled had the fish take all the line off the reel yeah and twice i've broke it off to uh, keep from being spooled and could not turn the fish yeah. there was no way to turn it yeah and that's with a heavy rod and a heavy deep sea reel and 100 pound braided nylon line yeah and you could not turn that fish yeah and uh one time I had John Rombach row me out there. We were out there, and that fish was taking us down the river. And John goes, you want me to keep going? I said, hell no. I said, we're going to have this raft where <laughs> we can't get back to camp, yeah. you know, and that's not going to be fun. So um, we, at that point in time, uh, was at that time, the hook actually pulled out right mm-hmm. before we had to cut the line. But um, there's a fish in that eddy there that I can't land. Yeah. Yeah. I've I got beat by a fish at
0: Doug Bar one time, um, and I was in my jet boat. We just couldn't get him up, and yeah. he, he ended up going underneath the boat and cutting the line on an on a nick in the aluminum. But we were a mile down river by the time that happened. Yeah. And then I've got beat at Oregon Hole. I think you might have been on that trip. Um, yeah,
1: there's a big fish around Oregon Hole. Yeah, yeah.
0: That fish, I could do nothing, and that was a that was with a. Penn senator eight 120 pound test is my old shark reel yeah right like i i can it's got 22 pounds of drag um i can put the herd on a fish with that gear and he said no <laughs> yeah he said no <laughs> but you're not just fighting the fish you're fighting the fish in Helsinki. and Spain the and, current and, yeah and snake river yeah um it's not like the columbia river it's not yeah it's, it's not a lake not like the fraser river um you know, this has some of the most graphic whitewater in the country, yep. and you're fighting a great big fish in it. Yeah. You you pretty much need their cooperation to land them.
1: I, I you know, I've trained a lot of uh, young guides in how to fish for sturgeon, but... I I don't know. I I kind of feel sorry for them getting caught over and over and over again, you know, that I don't, I don't feel the need myself to catch another sturgeon. I've I've caught quite a few over the years and, um, and I don't begrudge anybody else catching one or these young guides get, they get pretty excited about going there and hooking one and and the guests love to see them. But, uh, you know, and so I always have that tradition where you try and get a young girl on the trip to go down there and kiss the sturgeon the sturgeon deserves a kiss it yeah. deserves a kiss and yeah. it's funny how so many people are willing to do that and it's just it's just a, a crowd highlight yeah. you know to, to touch that and feel that smooth texture on that skin and to see that prehistoric monster yeah. laying there in front of you and then watch it swim away back into the river yeah you know so
0: uh i'll leave people with this hell's canyon is a very special place and it's it gets more special to people the more they experience it. And I found that to be universally true. But it is not it is not a place to just visit. Um if you don't know what you're doing, it will kill you.
1: you. Yeah, you can get killed down there. Whether you're hiking horseback or in a boat. You know. Yeah. It's uh I like that Forest Service sign. It's one of the few that I like. That shows the snake. It says the snake is deadly, and it shows a a river turning into a rattlesnake. And it's like if you don't know what you're doing, you better not go down here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good message. Yep. Yeah. Beautiful, but harsh.
0: Yeah. Horrifyingly beautiful sometimes.
1: Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, and like you know, you and I both. It's like uh, it's one of my favorite places on earth. Yeah. You know?
0: But it's also. It's also come close to getting us both.
1: Oh, yeah. You know? I really don't have a desire to row a boat at 45,000 CFS, you know, through Wild Sheep Rapid ever again in yeah. my life, you know. It just, you know, I've been down the Grand Canyon and been on the Middle Fork and the Main and seen those rivers at high water and low water. And, uh, there's something about going through Wild Sheep or Granite at, uh. 40,000 45,000 cfs it gets my attention right now Yep. you know it's kind of like going through lava or crystal or something (laughs) you know it's like let's not fuck up (laughs) (laughs) well mike thank you very
0: much for your time yeah it was fun Um, thanks for the drink appreciate it yeah About a decade ago, I launched my old aluminum drift boat onto a remote whitewater river and floated for a couple sunny spring days to meet some friends who were bear hunting downstream. While I made them dinner that evening, one of my buddies came over and showed me a SIG rangefinder. I'd heard of the company and I'd seen their gear while I was a marine, but this was the first time I'd seen one of their products built for hunters. The range popped up instantly, and it continued to range everything I put the reticle on as I scanned across the canyon. I'd never seen anything like it on the civilian market, and frankly, not on the military one either. Since that day, SIG has come out with a long list of high-quality and innovative products for hunters, as well as continuing the same for military, law enforcement, and responsible citizens. They have some great training facilities located around the country, too. Check out all that Sig has to offer on their website, sigsour.com. And this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Sig. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.